and welcome to The Schism. This podcast is all about critical thinking, dot connecting, the nature of reality, and trying to uncover the truth about the world we live in, society, who we are, and where we come from. Hello and welcome to The Schism. I'm joined today as always by my co-host Adam. Hello everyone. Today we have a very special guest on the show, author and researcher into the dark side of the music industry, Mark Devlin. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Hello guys, thanks for getting me on. Now just to give our audience a little bit of background on yourself, Mark, can you just tell us how you got into the type of work that you're doing now and what led you to be on the path that you're currently on exposing the music industry? Sure, I'll give you the potted version, which is that for many years, I worked as a professional radio and club DJ. It was 20 odd years. It was my main day job. I got going in the early 90s and that was my main job up until about 2014. And round about 2007, my worldview started to shift. So I started looking at subjects which really interested me at the time, such as who is really running every aspect of our daily lives in this world. And, and what groups and networks are sitting atop governments and all other institutions in society. And this sparked a period of research where I came to reevaluate my comprehension of all these different dynamics. And I really wanted to know how the music industry that I'd been a part of contributed to this overall process and how the agendas that were perpetuated through the music industry slotted into the overall jigsaw puzzle of what was happening in this world. So I set myself off down that course of research. And this was around about 2010, where I first started to go public with it. So up to that point, I was sort of quietly assimilating this information. But by 2010, I felt confident enough to stick my head above the parapet and sort of go public with this stuff. So I started my Good Vibrations podcast in 2011, and that was presenting much of the information that I'd come across. I started to get some interesting guests on the show, and I discussed many alternative slash truth slash conspiracy type subjects. I then set about putting together a book because as well as being a DJ, I'd also been a writer. So I put out one book up to that point, which was in 2007. It was called Tales from the Flip Side, and it was a collection of anecdotes from the sharp end of the DJ game. So that kind of allowed me to cut my teeth in the whole process of self-publishing a book. And I decided the time had come to bring together all the knowledge and all the information that I'd accrued up to that point and put it into a book. And the result was the first volume of my Musical Truth series, which came out in early 2016. And it was uh, about 180,000 words. So it was no quick read. And then in 2018, I brought out volume two because there was still loads of information that I'd not got into the first volume. And around about a year ago, I put out volume three. So that's the whole trilogy of books. And in the meantime, from sort of 2010 up to present day, I've put out I don't know how many thousands of podcasts, videos, and appeared on shows such as this and done loads of live talks and conferences just to get the word out about what's happening in the music industry, what it's really used for. And I'm pretty much fighting a lone battle, I feel, in terms of getting out there on the conference circuit. Certainly, there's many shows online which talk about this, but this has become my full-time job now. It's replaced 
what I did previously as a DJ. And instead of going out doing DJ gigs now, I'm now doing speaking gigs all over the country and further afield where possible to get the word out about how the music industry is nothing like we thought it was. Um, And what was the first sort of wake up call for you then? Like, when did you start looking at the music industry differently yourself? Was there any one moment in the middle of a DJ set you were like, something's not right here? (laughs) No, I guess you could say I was a slow learner. Because when I first started looking at what we might broadly term conspiracy type information, around about 2007, 2008, I'd started to come across some videos on YouTube. And I think this was back in the times when YouTube videos couldn't be longer than 15 minutes. So if you had a two hour documentary, it had to be split into segments and you had to watch each one individually, which is a right pain in the arse. Um, But I started to get little snippets of information. And what first turned me on to the fact that there was something a bit wrong with the music industry is when I started to learn about occult symbolism that was going into music videos and record sleeves and promotional photos, this kind of thing. I learned about all the hand signals that artists would do, the so-called 666 sign, the so-called pyramid sign, the so-called Illuminati hand gestures, the Baphomet horned hand sign. And these are calling cards to let those with the eyes to see know that these artists are in the club. They've sold their souls effectively, or they've been born into bloodline families where they've been inducted into the industry and they're pushing agendas and, uh, you know, serving a certain purpose. So that's what first alerted me to uh, the industry. And I first started looking at artists from the time that were contemporary, the early 2000s. And as my research progressed, I realized that this stuff had been around for decades. And I started looking at the 90s. I went back to the 80s, to the 70s, to the 60s. I was seeing all the big artists from each decade all doing the same hand gestures and the same signs and symbols appearing in their artwork and their videos. And eventually I went all the way back to the very birth of the popular music industry, which I uh, chart as being the mid-1950s. So it's pretty much 1955 onwards, and we can see the same the same modus operandi going all the way back. There are family connections into military intelligence realms. There are connections to dark occult ritualistic practices, secret societies, uh, unfortunately, pedophilia and other very unsavory topics. Uh, but they're all there, and they're all there consistently from the 1950s to present day. You know, the decade changes, the artists change, but the game stays the same. Yeah. And I think it's even more apparent, like, say with bands like Slayer, for example, like metal bands, when they have these kind of like, you know, pentagrams, darker cult imagery and things like that, because it sort of suits the music or like Marilyn Manson or something, I kind of always saw it as, well, it's quite overtly done. There's not an agenda there. But when I think it becomes really obvious is when it's like an innocent pop video aimed at children, but all the satanic imagery and stuff is still there. That was a penny drop for me where I realised this isn't just metal bands that are throwing up the devil horns and being quite blatant about it. This is in all types of music done in a quite a covert way also. Yeah, well, in the early days of my research, I was looking at a lot of the content from Vigilant Citizen. 
which remains a great resource to this day, vigilantcitizen.com. And the proprietor of that site really breaks down all this symbolism and particularly goes into mind control, trauma-based mind control and satanic ritual abuse. And he shows you what signs to look for to denote the artists that have been through this, unfortunately, uh, probably from early childhood, to program them ready for an entire career serving the system. And he shows how things like broken mirrors or teddy bears or dolls with uh, broken arms or limbs missing are all signs of that childhood trauma. And this brings in artists who put out seemingly innocent sort of uh, pop records. But when you get down to it, they're anything but innocent. So early days, I was looking at the likes of Britney Spears, mm. uh, Katy Perry, Beyonce, Rihanna, Taylor Swift, Miley Cyrus, these kind of artists. And when you get down to it, they're anything but innocent, particularly when you look at somebody like Miley Cyrus and even Britney Spears, two great examples. So what you have here is two artists who were shaped and molded from a very young age. And what links those two is that they both came out of the Disney Corporation. Yeah. Disney had this division called the Mickey Mouse Club, mm. which is where they would groom young kids ready for a career in entertainment. So Britney Spears was in the Mickey Mouse Club and she was in the same year as Justin Timberlake and Christina Aguilera. And all three of those artists went on to have pop careers and they were all pushing various parts of the agenda. And in the case of Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera, they became highly sexualized. So they were pushing ideas of sexuality to young kids because the fan base of the likes of these artists are primarily young girls pre-adolescence. So they'll be seven to maybe 13, 14, something like that. That's probably the prime fan base. So they start out with a, a seemingly squeaky clean sort of family friendly, wholesome image. That's certainly the way it was with Miley Cyrus when she emerged as Hannah Montana, that alter ego, which is probably a mind control alter when you get down to it. But then after a couple of years of building up the fan base and getting young girls to like them and getting parents to think, oh, it's okay for my kids to listen to this artist. This is just innocent pop music. Then they start to get overtly sexual. With Miley Cyrus, it's just been ridiculous. She had a stage act a few years ago where she was on stage dressed up as a baby with nappies on and a, a bloody dummy. And she's simulating masturbation whilst dressed as a baby, which mm. tells you all you need to know. And every time I think they've sunken as low as they possibly can and drained the very dregs of the cesspit, they amaze me by finding more ways of taking things even further. So by the time we get to artists such as, I use the term artists very loosely, uh, the likes of Cardi B and uh, Nicki Minaj and some of these so-called rap artists, what they're pushing now makes Miley Cyrus's stage act look, look like a girl guides picnic uh, because yeah. they just keep finding new ways to degrade the culture further and further and further, regrettably so. Well, we, we have uh, a great example of that, I think, is the video for Little Nas X. Not sure if you've seen this one where he's gyrating and getting his freak on in hell on Satan's lap. Yeah. Have you seen this? Uh, no, but it sounds like just another day at the office to me. 
Well, I'll send you the link to this one because this is the lowest depth that I think it's reached. It I mean, was. he's literally in hell giving Satan a lap dance. You know, when, when it first came out, our first surprise was he's a children's artist, as you say. Yeah. And but it he, could have been worse. He could have been giving Satan a blowjob, you know. That's probably next. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, he'd 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 gone from like Old Town Road to a couple of singles down the line. Suddenly he's giving Satan a lap dance. And it's similar to what you're saying, like this good girl gone bad thing. Like they start off seemingly innocent, but then before you know it, they've transformed into a whole different character. And and a lot of these videos, like the little Nas X one, he starts off in the garden, like the Garden of Eden, and then he descends into hell. I've noticed this as a recurring theme again and again in these music videos that they're kind of like fallen angels or they they kind of fall into sin. And you're, you're kind of getting this pattern forming again and again with all these new new artists. Is that like that? That's a pattern that you've obviously pick, picked up as well. Yeah, it is. And an interesting thing about Little Nas X is in his name, because it's obviously based around the original Nas. Mm the mm. rapper from the 90s. And Nas harks back to an era where at least hip-hop and rap was listenable and at least it had some integrity and some quality to the productions. That's the era that I came up uh, in the game in, in the 90s. I became a, a DJ playing hip-hop and R&B and urban music, what was termed urban music. And Nas was one of the biggest rap artists mm. of mm. the 90s. Was. And his album Illmatic from Classic. 1994 is consistently hailed as one of the all-time uh, top hip-hop albums of all time. And it's a masterpiece. It's uh, an incredible piece of work. And with Little Nas X, I can't help thinking that they're trying to degrade Nas's place in the culture by associating his name with that of this completely debased, uh, completely degenerate artist. Uh, so that's my my thoughts on that. I mean, there's a lot of talk I've heard about a gay mafia within hip hop. Is this something that you've heard about? Yeah, I have. I can remember, again, going back to the 90s. So going back a generation here, but you have to, to sort of keep things in context. There was an artist who emerged, uh, this mystery sort of artist, who was known as the gay rapper. So there was this rumor sweeping the hip hop industry. This would have been probably the late 90s, probably about 97, 98. And there was all this talk about, oh, there's a gay rapper. One of your favorite rappers is secretly gay. And this was big news back then. Whereas if you fast forward to today, it's nothing for an artist to come out as gay. I remember a few years ago, Frank Ocean uh, mm. came out as gay and everyone was like, oh, OK, fair enough. You know, that's brave of him to come out. And uh, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this. I'm just pointing out how different the culture was one generation ago to what it is now. So now you've got rappers who not only identify as gay, but they're straight transgender. They're pushing the whole LGBTQ agenda, which is an agenda. It's social engineering. It's coming from behavioral scientists from the likes of the Tavistock Institute in London, who specialize in shaping and molding societal attitudes and what's acceptable and the norms of the time. So these kind of things are not decided by the public. 
The public are coerced into taking on these mindsets and these attitudes. And to look at where so-called hip hop is today, I always have to say so-called because I can't accurately describe these so-called artists as hip hop because they're nothing of the sort. It bears no relation to what the culture was and what the music was when it first came along. But you have acts who identify as hip-hop artists, and they're blatantly pushing these agendas. So uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the artist. There's one that I cite in my Musical Truth One book. I would have to go back and find the name of the artist. You can tell how much of an impression he made on me. But in one of his videos, he's fellating a machine gun whilst dressed in a wedding dress. Now, if an artist in, let's say, 1995 had put out a video wearing a wedding dress, a male artist wearing a wedding dress, performing a blowjob on a machine gun, they would probably have been shot before the morning sun came up. Again, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not endorsing that kind of behavior. I'm just pointing out how different the culture was back then to what it mm -hmm. is now. So these days you can put out a video like that and nobody blinks an eye. And the young people, Gen Z, I believe they're called, uh, you know, those that are in the targets of the social engineers seem to think that's fine. You know, anything goes. But back in my day, I'm Generation X. If any artist had pulled a stunt like that in the hip hop rap music field, they would certainly never be able to perform again. They could probably never show their face in public. And that's if they get to keep their life. So that's how successfully the social engineers have changed attitudes as to what's acceptable and what's not in that entire genre. And I think that stands as a master study in how culture creation and social engineering gets done. Well, you know, the thing with hip hop, it used to be the voice of the downtrodden. That's not the voice of the hip hop artist now. No, it's all about materialism and consumerism. And if it's not about that, it's about killing people, shooting people, robbing people. This has obviously been purposefully done. But how, like artists that are involved in this, how aware are they, do you think, that they're pushing these agendas? Or is it something that they're blissfully unaware of? I think the so-called artists today, the young ones that are pushing these agendas, have probably been so socially conditioned themselves with all this stuff that they kind of embrace it and they uh, espouse those values personally. So they probably don't even realize that they're pushing agendas. They probably think that what they talk about in their so-called music is just the way life is in the 2020s. As you say, there are no positive messages at all mm. coming through mainstream hip-hop or mainstream pop music generally. Uh, there's a great deal of incredibly empowering truth music and conscious message music being made. And I showcase this in my Sound of Freedom conscious music podcast, but you've got to know where to look to find it. And it's coming from independent music makers who have no affiliations whatsoever to any major artists. So in terms of what's coming through the mainstream, you won't find any messages that offer any kind of empowerment, any kind of upliftment, any kind of positivity. It's all, for the most part, as you say, materialism, partying. And when it's not that, 
you get into the very ugly world of drill, so-called rap and grime, where they're straight out talking about killing people. It's gang warfare, you know, gangs talking about uh, massacring members of other gangs. And when it's not that, it's ultra explicit sexual stuff. Uh, which makes what was uh, put out in the 90s just sound like your, your local church tea with the vicar. So that's just how much it's been degraded. It does, again, become interesting to go back to some of the artists from the 90s. I keep going back there because that's my era. But again, to keep things in context, in context, you have to keep going back to the past. And one artist who I find very interesting to study is Buster Rhymes. So Buster Rhymes started out in the early 90s. He was part of a group called Leaders of the New School. And then he launched his solo career uh, when he came out with Woo Ha, Got You All in Check in 1995. And the interesting thing about Buster Rhymes is that I've gone into this in my books and I've mentioned it in some of my talks. A lot of the artwork that appeared in his albums in the mid to late 90s quite obviously foreshadowed what was going to happen on 9-11 in 2001. So he had an album called When Disaster Strikes, and he had another one called Extinction Level Event. And they both depict some sort of disaster befalling New York, specifically Manhattan. You see it all going up in explosions. And prior to that, he had a record called Everything Remains Raw, which came out in 1996. And at the start of this song, he says, there's only five years left. And five years on from 1996 was, of course, 2001. So it seems that Buster Rhymes had some sort of foreknowledge of what was going to happen on 9-11. A lot of artists did when it comes down to it. But Buster's actually addressed this in an interview. So in 2020, in the middle of the scandemic, he brought out Extinction Level Event 2, 20 odd years, 22 years after the original. And in an interview that I saw with him where he was promoting it, he directly addressed the idea that he was foreshadowing the events of 9-11 in his songs and in his artwork. And he spoke about having been fed information from certain sources as to some major event that was going to go down in New York. But infuriatingly, he doesn't go into where he got the information from or what the sources were. But I find it very interesting that he would talk about this openly in an interview in 2020. So there's an agenda getting pushed by an A-list artist in the 90s. Uh, this whole idea of materialism and all these negative sort of lifestyle aspects getting pushed through rap music, that goes back to the 90s as well. And I can remember when that agenda really got going. So if you listen to mainstream hip hop and rap from the early 90s, they're talking about some quite different stuff. You can go into the so-called native tongues artists like A Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul and the Jungle Brothers and Queen Latifah and Moni Love and people like this. And they're talking about, in some cases, some higher minded sort of spiritual ideas. And then you had a whole movement which got into the teachings of the 5% nation, the wow. nations of gods and earths, hmm. which is uh, a sort of offshoot of the nation of Islam. And you had groups like Brand Nubian and X-Clan and Ice Cube was involved in that whole thing. So that was the first part of the 90s. But then from the mid 90s, you had the emergence of Puff Daddy, Sean Puffy 
Combs mm. or whatever the hell he's calling himself this week. And when Puffy came on the scene with his bad boy records label with notorious B.I.G. Biggie Smalls as his flagship artist, that's when you really started the lyrical content of hip hop. You started noticing it change. So Puffy started pushing champagne lifestyles, you know, partying up in the club, bottles of crystal, gold chains, rims on your Jeep and uh, flashy suits and all this kind of thing. Blatant materialism, blatant worshipping of certain corporate brands. And if it wasn't that, then it was so-called gangster rap. This got going sort of early on in the 90s, pretty much from the West Coast, from the likes of Dr. Dre. And when he launched uh, Snoop Doggy Dogg's career, and then later he launched Eminem and 50 Cent. But all these artists were pushing sort of gang-banging lifestyles, criminal lifestyles. Jay-Z came along mid-90s. He's talking about slinging crack cocaine and all these other sort of criminal things. So way back then, you know, 30 years ago, you could see these agendas starting to come in. And what's interesting to me is that at the time... I was playing all this stuff as a DJ on the radio, in the clubs, and I didn't actually notice the agendas for what they were. I just thought, well, this is what rap music is. This is what hip hop culture is. That's why I liked it, because, uh, you know, back then, if I'm being honest, I just was looking for some way to step away from the mainstream and not be into what everybody else was into. And there weren't many white guys where I grew up in West Oxfordshire that were into hip hop culture. So that kind of attracted me to it. But I couldn't see the agendas. I just thought, this is great music. I love it. You know, I was I was clubbing. I was playing the, the tunes out. And it's only now, with the benefit of having done the research that I have, that I can see these agendas for what they were. And of course, that's what they were. You know, the music was being systematically changed to push the ideas of criminal lifestyles to the fan base of this music. And it was also pushing materialist lifestyles. And putting forward the idea that to be successful in life and to be happy in life, you have to spend loads of money, uh, buy expensive clothes brands, buy expensive sneakers, uh, buy expensive vodka, pop bottles of champagne up in the club and all this kind of stuff. And of mm. course, all of it is keeping you away from spirituality. It's keeping you away from higher minded pursuits in life. It's keeping you away from what life is and just keeping you distracted and keeping you tied and totally invested in the control system. I can see it so clear now, but I couldn't see it at all then. So it's easy to comprehend how so many young people get sucked into these agendas and can't see them for what they were. Well, going back to what you were saying with the Buster Rhymes albums, Dr. Dre had an album that come out 2001. I think it come out in 99. So mm -hmm. it always seemed strange that he would call it 2001, the year of... 9-11 happening and if you listen to that album there's even a, a skit they love their skits and it's called the car bomb and there's a detonated bomb that goes off um obviously in this case under someone's car like they do in the mob but I thought that was quite interesting that they had a skit with detonated explosives going on in that record as well but now it feels like there's different agendas that are being pushed through modern hip-hop like the glorification of taking these kind of like prescribed medicines that are really big in America, like Xanax and perks. And they have like lean, 
that it's like the the drink that they make up of like um cough mixture and kool-aid yeah, yeah right cough syrup yeah of syrup and sprite so compare it to the 90s again in the 90s they were obviously promoting weed which is a much more natural less harmless drug than all these kind of new school drugs that are really dangerous and there's obviously this massive like opioid crisis in america it is interesting to see over time how the agendas change even within just something like hip hop you see the different eras and the different agendas that are being pushed as we go from one era to the next that's right and hip hop stands as a microcosm for what happens in the music industry generally so you can select that one genre as you say and you can see how the agendas have changed over time but you can expand that out to the music industry overall and you know the drugs aspect is a good one to look at because it's like every new major scene that's come along that's really changed culture has come with a, with a drug of choice so mm-hmm. in the early days of the industry a lot of the artists were taking things like amphetamine speed to enhance their performances you could think of the beatles when they were performing in hamburg in their pre-fame days they were doing sort of eight hours a night six nights a week and it's been stated that the only way they could keep up that pace is by doing amphetamines uh, to keep them high. And many of the artists through the 60s did that. Then when the counterculture, the sort of hippie flower power scene got going, coming out of California, and there was a sort of British version of that as well with early bands like Pink Floyd, that scene was absolutely laden with LSD, which was coming out of the CIA for the most part. And British military intelligence was putting the stuff out on these shores. And there was, uh, to a certain extent, an embracing of things like psilocybin mushrooms and peyote and mescaline and these more natural entheogens. But the main one was the laboratory-produced LSD, which was all being done on the system's terms. Then in the 70s, along comes punk rock. In the mid-70s, replacing the sort of progressive rock styles that were there before. And the drug of choice there was heroin about as hardcore as you can get. So the British punk scene, and to a certain extent, the scene coming out of New York, was glorifying the use of heroin. That continued with grunge when that came out in the 90s. But between that, in the late 80s, you had the emergence of electronic dance music, spearheaded by the acid house rave scene in 87, 88, the second summer of love, so-called. And the drug of choice there was ecstasy, MDMA, that went hand in hand with the club scene, and that continues to this day. And I'm sure there are many other uh, genres you could highlight. Of course, reggae music, uh, roots reggae, comes with the heavy smoking of marijuana. That's more a sort of ceremonial thing coming out of the Rastafarian culture. Uh, It's not so much for shits and giggles. It's supposed to be part of their culture, you know, part of their rituals. But every scene seems to have a drug of choice. And with the exception, possibly, of the Rastafarian thing coming through reggae, all of this is occurring at the hands of social engineers. So they create the scene, they create the music, or certainly steer off the music in certain desired directions. They implant their chosen artists to help move that scene along, and they create the mind-altering drug that's going to be accepted socially by the fans of the music going hand-in-hand with that aspect of the culture. So, yeah, I think that's an interesting observation. It's not just music. It's 
other ways of changing people's behaviors Mm -hmm. and changing the way people interact with each other. Keeping on that as a subject for a bit, a lot of people see, say, the flower power LSD Woodstock movement of like the 60s as something that was like really rebellious and like anti-establishment, anti-system. But I know you put up the argument of actually it wasn't that at all. It was socially engineered to push certain agendas. Like, could you just talk about that a little bit more? And like for people that don't know at home, like people listening, when when I say people listening, I don't mean MI5 or the FBI. I mean our audience. Could you just tell them about like Laurel Canyon and that kind of whole um, military involvement and the CIA involvement from that era as well? Because I find that really interesting. It is. And it tells us so much about a very consistent dynamic that's been in place in the industry since day one. I learned about all this from the work of Dave McGowan, the late author and researcher. Uh, Dave put out a book in 2014 called Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. And this was based on his many years of research into the Laurel Canyon district in the Hollywood Hills of Los Angeles and how this neighborhood attracted artists from all over the United States and further afield, Canada and even the UK, who all seemed to be drawn magnet-like to this one particular area, which had no musical history or heritage whatsoever prior to the mid-1960s. So there were no music clubs there, no recording studios, nothing to link it to the music industry. What was there was a covert military research installation known as Lookout Mountain, right up there overlooking LA from Laurel Canyon. And this place was used for various uh, military intelligence research functions, not least the production of propaganda films on behalf of the US government. And many famous people worked undercover there, uh, including Marilyn Monroe, uh, Bob Hope, James Stewart, Walt Disney, Ronald Reagan, Cary Grant. They all had uh, attachments to Lookout Mountain. So this sparked Dave McGowan's interest And he decided to look into the family backgrounds of these key musicians who were a part of that whole counterculture scene, which really changed music and attitudes towards everything, towards family, towards sex, towards drugs. Everything changed in that period from the mid to late 60s. So McGowan looked into some of these family backgrounds and he used information that's in the public domain and always has been. It was merely a case of piecing it all together. So it was all sitting there just waiting to be discovered. But when you do bring it all together, you see some very clear patterns starting to form. So with all the key artists, such as the Doors, which is a great example, the Mamas and the Papas, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Captain Beefheart, Buffalo Springfield, Alice Cooper, the Beach Boys, the Birds, the Eagles, so many of these acts that changed the culture of those times. You find direct connections, usually through the fathers, into the world of military intelligence. So it's expressions of the US Army, the Office of Naval Intelligence, the Air Force, different expressions of the Defense Department, the Pentagon, different expressions of government, connections into Ivy League universities like Harvard and Yale, connections into secret societies like the Freemasons and the Jesuits. When it comes to rock musicians, 
historically, before I started doing this research, I would always ex have expected the fathers of rock stars to have, for the most part, held working class blue collar type jobs. So I would have expected to have found lorry drivers, dockers, builders, carpenters, plumbers, you know, this kind of thing. You don't find any of that with these artists. What you do find is admirals, generals, mm. uh, diplomats, politicians. The classic example that McGowan cited was that of Jim Morrison, frontman of The Doors, which is a group primarily thought of as representing anti-war anti-establishment values going against the value system of their parents' generation. Jim Morrison's dad was the Navy Admiral in charge of the fleet of ships involved in the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which was a false flag which basically launched the Vietnam War and springboarded that whole thing. And there are so many other examples. So there was something special about Laurel Canyon. It was chosen to become the hotbed for all these artists. And the research demonstrates that the whole counterculture scene, while it's thought of by the general public as being very grassroots and very organic and having risen up as a result of all the things that were going on in America at the time, the Vietnam War, all these other social conditions, was anything but natural. It was all completely contrived. The artists that drove and directed it were inserted into place by aspects of military intelligence because it was a military intel operation. And it's a master study in how all that stuff gets done. I learned a lot more about it from Jan Irvin and Joe Atwill, who had a great podcast series a few years ago called Unspun, where they really dove into just how much the CIA is embedded at every turn in all that stuff with the counterculture. They were the ones putting the drugs onto the scene. They were the ones creating the rock bands. And I've also learned a lot about it more recently from the researcher known as Crow 777 and Jason Lindgren. They've got a great series as well, where they really take a deep dive into this. And for anyone thinking, oh, well, that was just the 60s, that's been and gone. The first thing to mention is that the ripples from all those social changes that occurred in that time period are still being felt today. Mm. So that was the period where you had relaxed attitudes towards sex. The birth control pill came out. Recreational drug use, such as LSD, taking magic mushrooms, smoking weed, whatever, was popularized during that time period. And that's persisted to this day. And the music that came along then replaced what had gone previously and laid the foundations for rock music as we have it today. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is everything that we saw happening in that 60s scene has been replicated who knows how many times in who knows how many scenes. So with punk and new wave, with grunge, with hip hop, with electronic dance music, acid house, all these different scenes, you can see the same MOs being employed. Namely, the establishment control system puts its own artists of choice into these movements to lead it in certain desired directions. They put the drugs into the scene and they set the agendas that are going to be pushed. And we're right back around full circle to where we started this conversation with the so-called rap artists of today pushing 
the agendas of the day. So we can see they're pushing LGBTQ and transgenderism. They're pushing transhumanism and the glorification of AI big time. One of the major artists that's done that is Will I Am of the Black Eyed Peas, who also happens to sit on the board of the World Economic Forum at Davos, would you believe? Rubbing shoulders with Klaus Schwab and the like. Mm. He's been named as an ambassador for AI for the World Economic Forum and the pushing of other agendas as well. So climate change is a big one. Don't be surprised to find your favourite rap artist, I use the term loosely, endorsing ideas of climate change in records to come very soon. With uh, Will I Am, even the spelling of his name, Will.I.I.Am, there's uh, like a transhumanist magazine called I.Am, I.A.M. Yeah, well, I call him Shill I Am. But uh, yeah, I mean, his, his name reads like a web address with the dots in it. Mm. And he came out 20 odd years ago when the internet was in its infancy. But now, and, and there's another guy out of Black Eyed Peas called Apple.D.App. Mm. So their very names sound transhumanist and electronic. Well, and also you've had the introduction of things like auto tune, which is changing. Like when Will I Am raps on a record, it sounds like a computer. So mm. it, it, even the sound of it is pushing a transhumanist agenda. That's another thing. Travis Scott is another great example of that. He literally just sounds like a computer. Yeah, so many of them do. That's been normalised as well. That's a very clear agenda that's been pushed through so-called rap music uh, to the point that most so-called rappers these days uh, have their voices plugged into autotune mm. and most so-called singers as well. And it does make them sound like robots, and that's entirely the idea. So autotune's been around for probably the best part of 20 years when it comes to so-called urban music. So it would have been known way back then that they wanted to get young people in this age to a place where they just celebrate everything being done digitally, electronically, the interaction of AI with humanity. That's what transhumanism is. And putting auto-tune into this so-called music is just a way of uh, making all that acceptable and palatable and normal, normalizing it. You know, it sounds diabolical. And anyone from my generation just can't take any mm. artist seriously if they plug their voice into auto-tune. But it's the way things are done now. I remember hearing a story a few years ago about artists, well, artists, karaoke singers who were auditioning for The X Factor had learned how to make their voices sound mm. like they were using auto-tune because they thought that's how you have to sound to impress the judges and have a hit record these days, which is absolutely horrific. Yeah. Well, that's like uh, the rapper Lil Baby. He His normal voice sounds like he's got auto-tune on. <laughs> and he's obviously kind of modelled it on on that. Now you even have AI making music like I, I, I don't know if you i've been listening recently to ai nirvana songs so people like feed this program the nirvana back catalog play it a bit of a song and then the ai interprets what the rest of the song was going to be so you've now got ai actually making music itself i wonder if the end agenda is actually to do away with the artist completely and just have ai writing the music performing the music inserting any subliminals into the music they want yeah do you think that's a bit far-fetched or do you think that's ultimately where they would want to take things no i think that's quite feasible because the whole ai agenda is at its core satanic 
the industry is satanic. I don't mean Satanism in terms of what most people's perception of it probably is, involving the Christian devil and this entity known as Satan. Satanism is an ideology, it's a worldview which is anti-God, anti-nature, anti-humanity. And that's exactly what AI is. So we live in a society where technology is starting to replace every aspect of what human beings used to do. And that's expressing itself just as much through entertainment as it is in any other role. So a good example actually would be DJing methods. Just taking it back to, again, when I first started in the industry in the early 90s, back then it was still the era of vinyl records. So if you were a DJ back then and you were playing out in clubs, you would have to hump heavy ass crates of vinyl records in with you. And you would have to put a new record on the turntable every time you wanted to change the tune. And you would have to learn how to mix it by ear using your own personal judgment and your own human skills to sequence one record into the next. So then as the years progressed, vinyl started to get phased out and a lot of DJs started embracing CDs, digital audio. So you've got to switch there from an analog to a digital format. And then very quickly, laptop DJing came along using software programs like Traktor and Serato. And so most DJs gravitated towards that way of doing things. And I would say 99% of DJs that you see out performing in clubs now are playing off of laptops. And many of them will be using technology which mixes and sequences the records for you. So that human skill of beat matching and working out for yourself, which record goes well off the back of another one, has been replaced by a computer deciding to do it for you. It's kind of the same thing as when you used to go out driving in your car. If it was raining, you yourself would decide what speed you want to put your windscreen wipers on, right? Now the car decides for you. You're driving along, it starts to rain, the wipers go on. The car's decided. Uh, so we see this being replicated in every aspect of our lives. And going back to the entertainment thing, a few years ago, we started to get news stories of hologram artists performing concerts. One of them was Tupac, mm. who yeah, we supposedly died in 1996. There was a Tupac hologram, which was going on tour. They were taking this hologram on tour and people were paying money to go into a concert hall and see an electronic rendering of an artist who probably died many, many, many years ago before uh, performing on stage, a hologram filling out stadiums. So I'm sure this is where they want to take things long term and they hope to have many more artists uh, there in holographic form. Just think of the money you can make by putting a hologram on tour in 20 different countries all on the same night. Don't be surprised if that's the way things go. It sounds far-fetched. It sounds ridiculous. But we live in a total clown world now, which bears no resemblance to what the world was just a few short years ago. All these agendas are being stepped up. They're all electronic in nature, transhumanist in nature, and therefore by default, satanic in nature. Because it's anti-human at, at its core. With with the because uh, we've we've spoken about the Tupac hologram before. It's funny because I had the same thoughts 
in terms of, oh my God, this is going to be the next big thing. Before you know it, there are holograms of every artist that has been dead and gone for years and there'd be, you know, like you'd be going to see festivals and it would just be festivals full of holograms, but it never really took off. And I kind of wonder like the reason that, because they obviously have the technology, but the reason that they've held back on it is because they've actually been using this holographic technology with figures like the Pope and the Queen. Do you have an opinion on this? Because we've we've done a whole episode on the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, where we put forward the argument that actually the Queen that everyone thinks they've been seeing for the past few years has been either CGI in these ridiculous videos, like with Paddington Bear and stuff, or a bloody hologram. Now, are we mental, Mark? Or <laughs> is is there something going on here? You're absolutely right. I've talked about this in my own shows recently. I've noticed over the course of the past, uh, up until her supposed death in September of 2022, I suspect that she actually died a long time before that. But up to that point, we were getting a CGI rendering of the Queen appearing on news reports and in so-called interviews. And there's no doubting this. I've actually had experts who work in the field of creating CGI for films and TV shows tell me that there's no doubt in their professional estimation that we've had a CGI queen. But you don't even need to be an expert to see it. It's so obvious. So for a very long period, they were rolling out a CGI hologram of the queen. You mentioned the Paddington Bear thing, which is an obvious one. There was also the alternative Christmas message of, I think it was Christmas 2020, where on Channel 4, they demonstrated this deep fake technology by putting across what you suppose to be the Queen sitting in her drawing room at Buckingham Palace, and she's speaking at the piano. And then at a certain point in the video, she jumps up on the piano and starts performing a TikTok dance. Mm. And the audience is like, oh, it was a CGI hologram of the Queen after all. But how many people at the start would have realized that? And it's as if the controllers put out that video to spill the beans on what they've actually been doing, which is putting out a CGI queen. There was one ridiculous video that I saw where she was on a Zoom call with five other people talking about the NHS response to Convid. Who knew the queen does Zoom calls? Apparently she does. Uh, but it was so obviously CGI. And she's not the only example. Prince Charles or King Charles, as we're supposed to refer to him now, uh, has been using a double. So I don't think this is CGI. I think they've actually been using an actor who doesn't look very much like him at all. And for anyone that's paying attention and actually using their eyes and using critical thought, they would be able to see that that's not Charles. But they've been blatantly putting this guy out in interviews and saying, here's Prince Charles and speaking to him. And you can see it's an actor. And then it gets weirder and weirder because you've got certain other public figures who also appear to have been replaced. Joe Biden appears to be a CGI hologram. And I don't make statements like this lightly because I know there's a lot of researchers online now making all kinds of crazy claims like everyone's a double and everyone's the alternative gender to the way they're presented. Uh, I think you need evidence and you need proof when you're making such wild claims. But we have it. 
you know, there was a famous video of Joe Biden glitching out. His hand went in front of a microphone and uh, pixelated and stuff. So you can see it wasn't really him. And then we've got a very strange situation going on with certain artists. So one that I've highlighted recently is Madonna. The original Madonna doesn't seem to be around anymore. And again, this is an evidence-based statement. I did a presentation in November titled Dark Occult Aspects of Madonna, where during the talk, I presented photographic and video evidence of the replacement. So there are two individuals, it seems to me, who are being passed off as Madonna. One of them looks a bit ropey and rough. Uh, and the other one looks like she's no more than 25 or 30 years of age, whereas Madonna is supposed to be 64. And we're told that Madonna's undergone cosmetic surgery and she's had her wrinkles ironed out and all this. But no amount of surgery in the world could create such a radical appearance modification such as we have with Madonna. And the other one, and I know you wanted to talk about him, is Kanye West. So Kanye's been in the headlines a lot lately, making a lot of controversial statements. We can speculate as to why that's going on, and I've got a, a thought or two about it. But a point to make here is that there is an individual who is being presented to the world as Kanye West, and it's not him. So there's one video in particular I'm thinking of where he's in a car and he's got the window wound down. You might know the one I'm talking about. And he's he's talking away about uh, people that are being targeted for censorship. And you can see quite clearly it's not Kanye. So Kanye is supposed to be, I think he's supposed to be like 45 or 46 years of age or something now. This guy looked no more than 30. And I've been a DJ on the hip hop scene for 30 odd years. I know what Kanye West looks and sounds like. I watched his career from when it first got going in the early 2000s. He talks a certain way. He looks a certain way. And this guy didn't look or sound enough like him. So whatever else is going on, we've also got a replacement Kanye West. Because sometimes like with, like say, Biden, for, for example, it seems like there's a, there's a few of them. I know that sounds mental, but mm. something that I've seen a lot in popular culture in recent years is this idea of clones. I mean, I even watched like the newest Resident Evil series and that had clones in it. They're, they're kind of like weaving it into all kinds of like programs and things. What do you make of this as like an idea? I've never gone for the idea of biological clones. So there's this guy, Donald Marshall, that's spoken a lot about it. He's claimed that he's been part of this secret government program to clone people and that they do it with celebrities all the time. I don't personally believe that you can take an individual and do whatever it is they're supposed to do, take a sample of their DNA and then effectively grow a clone from them. Uh, one question I would have is where does the soul fit into this? Because as living sentient beings, we come with a soul, not just a physical body. So if you've created another physical body, does the soul from the original go across to that, in which case the soul has been split, which I don't accept can happen. And if the 
being that you've created comes with its own soul, where does that soul come from? These are very deep and metaphysical questions, but I've never really accepted the idea that you can clone uh, somebody in that way. I know it's supposedly been done with a sheep. Uh, I would have the Dolly. same questions. <laughs> Dolly, yeah. I would have the same questions about that uh, organism. You know, I think what we're looking at when we see apparent doubles is either actors playing the role or CGI fakery. For me, it's one or the other. With Joe Biden and the Queen, blatantly CGI. With King Charles, it's been an actor. Uh, Paul McCartney, <laughs> I mean, Paul McCartney set the precedent for all of this. So the Kanye and Madonna situation is kind of like uh, the Paul McCartney scenario upgraded for a new generation. But um, I think what you get is CGI or actors, but not actual clones. If people are out there within the industry, Mark, really know what's going on, that's not the real Madonna, then how deep and well hidden is this secret within the industry that everyone is not who they say they are? Yeah, because also on that same point, I've I've seen a clip of, I can't remember who it was, but someone on the red carpet seeing Paul McCartney and going, hey, Billy, how you doing? And they call him Billy. So it's like, Within Hollywood, do you think these things are just kind of like known? Like, yeah, everyone knows that's not the real Paul. And and could you also, for listeners at home, maybe kind of embellish that story a little bit? Because they might be like, what the hell are you talking about? But as well as explaining the story, like, do you think that these things are just commonly known? Whether it's Paul McCartney or Madonna, people within the in industry or within Hollywood, they actually know these secrets. And it's only like us, the plebs, the serfs, the general masses that have no clue that this is really going on. Yeah, well, the McCartney situation is pretty much the most enduring conspiracy theory to come out of the music world. And the idea is that in 1966, and the date that's most commonly given is 9-11, so September 11th of 1966, some nice numerology going on there. The original Paul McCartney died in a car crash and was replaced by an individual who goes by the name of William Shepard. In some versions of the story, it's William Campbell, known colloquially as Billy Shears. Hence the introduction on the Beatles Sgt. Pepper album on the opening track, May I Introduce to You the One and Only Billy Shears. That was the replacement being presented officially to the world for the first time, according to the story. It sounds preposterous when you first hear it, but there are a lot of very compelling points to consider. One is that directly after this replacement is supposed to have taken place, the Beatles stopped performing live. So their very last official concert was on the 29th of August, 1966, in Candlestick Park in San Francisco. Beyond that, they became a studio band. So all the albums they produced were done behind closed doors. Nobody got to see these albums being produced. And the theory is that the replacement McCartney was playing on these tracks and not the original. The original Paul McCartney was left-handed. He played his bass with his left hand. And the story goes that the replacement had to learn how to play bass left-handed so that when he went out touring solo, he would get accepted as the original McCartney. There's all kinds of symbolic clues that are inserted into Beatles albums, into the recordings, into the artwork. There's all kinds of cryptic comments that have been slipped into interviews by McCartney or Billy Shears, if that's who it is, over the years pertaining to a switch having taken place. 
there's a reason why the largest chapter in my first book, Musical Truth One, is the one concerning the McCartney replacement. It's 15,000 words. And I go into every clue that's been put out there and every sort of indication we have that the guy we have today is not the original Paul McCartney. So there are many other celebrities and famous people, as you say, who have referred to what is supposed to be Paul McCartney as Billy. So Olivia Harrison, who is George Harrison's widow, uh, once met him at a, an event and went, hello, Billy. We've got some video of that. Mm. Uh, there's the actor Dana Carvey, who was in Wayne's World, and he starts talking about uh, Paul McCartney. And then halfway through the anecdote, he says, so, you know, the thing with Billy, uh, hello, you were talking about Paul McCartney a minute ago. Why are you talking about somebody called Billy now? And so many other examples. Uh, in the movie, Give My Regards to Broad Street, he walks into a room, McCartney, and somebody says, do you know William? And he gets referred to as Bill and Billy in, in so many other instances. So there's a lot of very compelling stuff there. And uh, this is the idea that the individual we have today is not the uh, original McCartney. Uh, sorry, there was another aspect to your question there. Just remind yeah, me of what you asked. It was, it's something like that commonly known within the industry or within Hollywood. Sure. I think there's a hierarchy in the industry. And once you reach a certain grade, you become privy to such secrets. So another very entertaining video involved Denny Lane, who was in the group Wings with ostensibly Paul McCartney. And the interviewer catches Denny Lane after a show. And they've all had a few drinks. They're well oiled, you know, and this guy's slurring his way through some questions. And he says at the end of the video, what was it like working with William Shepard? And he's hoping that Danny Lane will respond in, in some sort of telling way. And Danny Lane sort of looks at him very strange when he first asked the question. He goes, William Shepard, who's that? And he goes, you mean Billy Shears? And then they all sort of fall about laughing because it's as if Danny Lane has confirmed that Paul McCartney is really Billy Shears. And I think many in the industry know, uh, according to the memoirs of Billy Shears by Thomas E.U. Harriet, which purports to be the tell-all autobiography of the guy that came to replace McCartney. It's very occult. It's very loaded with all sorts of uh, ritualistic, symbolic stuff. But it purports to be telling the story of how this switch took place and all the sort of uh, occult elements to it. And according to this, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles' apparent rivals, although actually they were all on the same team, knew all about it. Elton John came to know all about it. The singer Donovan knew all about it. Obviously, Denny Lane knew all about it. And many in the industry know that that's not Paul McCartney. Makes me wonder about Michael Jackson and Stevie Wonder, who did songs with him. I suspect that once you've got to Michael Jackson and Stevie Wonder levels in the industry, you would be privy to this kind of information. So when you're at that level, certainly if you're a sir, you're going to know that's not him. And it also reminds me of, you might have seen that video of Joan Rivers from several years ago, where she outs Michael Obama. Michael. Mm, big Mike. You know, big Mike. She says, Big Mike. She says, uh, everyone knows that Michelle Obama is a transgender. Come on now. You know, it's Big Mike. Barry is, is gay. Everyone knows this in Hollywood, she says. Very shortly after that, she just happened to die in uh, very suspicious circumstances. But I'm sure there's no connection to it whatsoever. But the point is, Joan Rivers knew that Michael Obama is a dude. And if she knew, 
as she said, pretty much everyone in Hollywood would know and most famous people would know. So I think you reach a level where you're clued in to all this stuff. But if you're lower level, you're sort of entry level in the industry, then you wouldn't have been taken in uh, with that kind of information. So there are probably many lower level musicians who think that's the real Paul McCartney because mm -hmm. they've got no reason to think otherwise because yeah. they've not been clued in. Just reminded me, actually, when you were talking about Michelle Obama, because there's a there's quite a few clips where Obama slips up and he says, "Oh, me and Michael or Mike," and and he calls her the wrong name. So yeah, yeah, it's, uh, many many clips. He just yeah. says, you know, uh, Michael and I. Yeah, and wh why are people in attendance not thinking Michael? Well, who's he talking about, Michael? He he makes it so obvious, and yet most people still don't seem to see it. Well, yeah. when has any man in history ever got his spouse's name wrong? Yeah, or got it mixed up with a guy. <laughs> Several a times. Name. Yeah, it's re really bizarre. Well, another um, another more recent person we wanted to talk to you about, we spoke a little about Kanye, is Dave Grohl. Because mm. Dave Grohl, I feel like he's held up as like the nice guy of rock and roll. And I was even in a bar uh, recently wait, waiting for a friend of mine and they had a sign a light up sign in the bar and it said thank you god for dave grohl or something Re really strange the way he's kind of presented now as this figure that sort of rose from the flames mm. of kurt's death and obviously more recently the taylor hawkins death but more and more over these years the pair of us have started to get a similar feeling towards dave grohl than we would have had towards bono or someone of this sort of ilk. So what what do you think is the real story behind Dave Grohl, his rise to fame, and even the recent things that have happened to him, like Taylor dying and him pushing the convid agenda? Mm. You know, this this guy is not who we're being told he is, is 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 our gut feeling. Yeah, well, I don't think we should be thanking God for Dave Grohl. I think you need to look in the opposite direction for where he came from and the values that he represents actually referring to him as the new Bono is a, a pretty good analogy because he's pushing agendas now, just like Bono did a few years before him. So I did a bit of research into Dave Grohl for musical truth too, and using the same sort of methods of detection that Dave McGowan had and Dave, by the way, passed away very soon after he put out that landmark book, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. The book was published in 2014. By the end of 2015, Dave was dead of a very uh, aggressive and fast-acting form of cancer. Go figure. Anyway, using those same methods, I did a bit of digging into Dave Grohl. And it turns out that his father, James Harper Grohl, was involved in American politics. And he worked in the White House in the office of William Howard Taft, who was one of the presidents of the United States. And Taft's father, Alfonso Taft, was the founder of the Skull and Bones Secret Society oh. Mystery School Fraternity in Yale University. So through Dave Grohl, this rock musician, we've got connections into Skull and Bones and American politics right into the belly of the beast. So very far from being some random rock musician who just happened to rise to fame through hard work and good luck, we can know that he was deliberately inserted into the scene because he's one of them. He's in the club. 
He was earlier. He wasn't the original drummer, was he, Mark? Well, he was in Nirvana. That's what I'm saying. Drummer. In Nirvana, it was um, Chad, Chad Channing originally. Chad Channing. So we sort of right. wondered at the point of Nirvana, like this band's going to go supersonic. Right, we need to out this guy and put this guy in. Is that how you think things like that take place? I think quite possibly because a lot of researchers have implicated Dave Grohl in the very suspicious death of Kurt Cobain. I think very few people that look into Cobain's death accept that he killed himself. Uh, Courtney Love seems to be very deeply implicated in this. Her father, her biological father, Hank Harrison, was a one-time asset of the CIA. And he also worked as a road manager for the group The Grateful Dead. And many people feel that Courtney Love and Dave Grohl, who was the drummer in Nirvana at the time of Kurt Cobain's death, would have had something to do with what happened to him. He was, of course, a member of the fabled 27 Club, this large number of musicians who just happened to turn up dead at the age of 27 in suspicious circumstances. So then Grohl went on to form the Foo Fighters, his own band. And if we apply a bit of uh, numerical wordplay to the name of his group, Foo, F-O-O, well, F is the sixth letter of the alphabet and O is the 15th. You add one and five and you get six. So Foo corresponds directly to 666, this favoured number of dark occultists that crops up all over the place in the backstory of the music business. And Dave Grohl seems to be especially keen on the number 666. It's connected, of course, with uh, Satanism and dark occult practices. I'm not saying the number itself is inherently evil. It's always down to the circumstances in which it's applied, but it has been adopted by dark occultists as one of their favoured numbers. So there's a story that I've highlighted in some of my talks where Dave Grohl went out for a restaurant meal with some friends and the bill came to $333. And Dave, being the generous guy that he is, he rounded up the tip by another $333 to a total of $666. And I've got the uh, receipt as one of the slides that I show in my talks. Then we've got the movie, which came out last year, called Studio 666. How could it be any other number? And this is like this spoof comedy sort of rockumentary where the group supposedly turn up at this haunted mansion and they're trying to record a rock album there. But Dave Grohl gets possessed by this uh, evil spirit that's present in the house and it causes him to go on a murderous rampage. And among those who he kills and his bandmates are Taylor Hawkins, the drummer with the Foo Fighters, who is depicted getting decapitated by a symbol. Very shortly after Studio 666 gets released, Taylor Hawkins turns up dead in very suspicious circumstances. He'd supposedly been clean from drugs for many, many years, but we're told that he'd had a relapse and uh, underwent an overdose. So 666 follows Grohl wherever he goes. More recently, he's also been pushing the uh, the arm spears, you know, the Britney Spears, as uh, they're referred to, the three dart finish. And uh, he's been saying that you can't come to a Foo Fighters concert unless you're fully tapped. So uh, there's a good reason to stay away. Hey. Yeah, I mean, the, the Foo, Foo Fighters have really been pushing the COVID agenda. They've definitely become more satanic in their imagery, like their album covers now have got satanic symbolism. And it's like, they weren't doing this when they were doing like Learn to Fly or nah. whatever on on 
previous records, but they just like we were talking about earlier with these pop artists that go from like good girl to bad girl. It's like they've become more and more mm-hmm. satanic over time. And they push the COVID agenda like full on. I mean, as much as any other band I can think of in terms of their Vax only shows and things like this. But it's kind of made us go back to Grohl and look at him in a different light. I recently watched this clip of him at the VMAs. It was the first award that he got up to accept for Nirvana after Kurt's death. And when he comes up to the mic very sheepishly, he starts by saying, I'm not the most vocal of guys, but I want to say a few words and it's not the same without Kurt here. Thank you very much. But he starts by saying, I'm not the most vocal of guys. And I couldn't help but feel like that was a pre-programming, like he he's going to be the vocalist for this new band. He's not the most vocal of guys. It, it, it was kind of interesting like to think, are these people so calculated that they're putting out things like that from the off? Do you think, they would they would be pre-programming people in that sense. I think when you're born into a family like Grohl's and you have those kind of connections through your parents, you're pretty much groomed for a lifetime in the industry, mm. whatever role has been chosen for you. So it might be uh, that you've been chosen to be a Hollywood actor and you're going to be pushed into that scene. You might have been tapped to be a musician, you might be tapped for the world of politics or whatever it is. There are endless examples of this. If you're unfortunate enough to be born into the wrong family, your future seems to be mapped out for you. So an example that I've given in recent shows is that of Boris Johnson's nanny, who gave an interview a few years ago, and she said that she remembered when Boris was a very little boy He was getting told by his parents that one day he would be British Prime Minister. Mm. Fast forward a few decades and that very thing happens because none of these positions get occupied at random. You know, they're reserved for the system's own, their assets that they want in there. I think it's very much the same in the entertainment industry. So there's always a number one position that's available for the most influential rock artist of the time or the most influential R&B singer or the most influential rapper. And they just merely slot those that they've selected for these roles into those positions. So the myth that anyone can rise to those lofty heights, any girl that wants to can be the next Beyonce or Rihanna. All they have to do is work really hard and make the right connections, cross their fingers for good luck. Doesn't work like that. They only ever put their tried and trusted own types into these roles. And so often it comes down to the family that you've been born into. And with Dave Grohl, we can see that his life was pretty much mapped out for him when he was born into that family and it's highly unlikely that it could have gone any other way for him. Mm. We were even focusing on it, the uh, focusing in on the very first Foo Fighter singles because the first single we put out after Kurt's death and forming that band was "Our Stick Around," like, and he has stuck around. You know, Kurt's dead now. Unlike Taylor his bandmates, eh? Yeah, exactly. Unlike his bandmates, their uh, second single was "This Is a Call," so a call to fame, a call to promise, Dave. Yeah, a call he certainly seems to have answered. But it's funny, you look back, you know, you like like I was saying, you you heard him say, oh, I'm not the most vocal guys. And then the first singles have these messages 
It's, it's kind of crazy how even within the music, there's so many messages, there's so many clues being put out there all the time. I think most people don't even tune into the lyrics, but that's another huge part of this, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it often occurs to me that if somebody like Dave Grohl, somebody in that position of influence, were to come forward, have an attack of conscience and think, I can no longer be a part of, of what I'm being asked to push. I'm going to come clean about all this. If they could find some sort of platform to come out and say, I've been instructed to push these agendas. The entertainment industry is run by deeply malevolent groups and networks and individuals who have an interest in steering society in a certain way. And then to get even more specific and say, folks, you need to understand that the entire COVID agenda was a scam. It was a con. It was a put-up job. The arm spears are being used to depopulate humanity. They're literally killing people. Imagine that kind of message from that kind of individual with the sort of following and the sort of sway that he has. Now, the unfortunate thing about that is any individual coming forward with that sort of message would probably pay for it with their life. Yeah. You know, they would have a heart attack or take an overdose or turn up dead in a bathtub very shortly after making such an announcement. But they would be sacrificing themselves for the greater good of humanity. And if only there were just one individual that would do that and mm -hmm. be prepared to pay for it with their life, that would spell the end of the agenda. Because the control system have to consistently pump out their propaganda and their fear-based mind control through the controlled mainstream media 24-7. They just have to keep that message coming time and time again, 24-7, 365. Somebody of that ilk mm. popping up to counter that message with the, the massive following they would have. I mean, I often think about like Paul McCartney or Mick Jagger, somebody like that. Obviously, it's never going to happen with somebody like that. But just imagine if it did. Just mm. imagine. Mm. Paul McCartney... Never going to happen. But if he came forward yeah. and said, COVID's a scam, you're all being had, that would be the end of it. The entire agenda would fail at that very moment, and the controllers would never again be able to get away with a PSYOP such as this. But unfortunately, that's where the mind control comes in. If it's not allegiance to the cause, if these artists aren't so firmly invested in their families and in the overall agenda that they actually believe in the cause. And so they're quite happily promoting all the propaganda. If it's not that, then for the most part, they're mind controlled into subservience and obedience. That's where the trauma-based mind control from an early age comes in, mm. because they don't want these people becoming loose cannons. They can't afford to have somebody going off script and making wild comments. And every now and again, I think we get examples of artists that do. And we can see quite clearly what happens to him. So one example I would give would be Michael Jackson, who started, um, I would say, going off script with some of his messages, some of his comments that he was making, which I don't think were scripted. They were coming from the heart, from he himself. I think we saw the same thing with Prince. I think we saw aspects of it with George Michael. And we can see how it ended up for each one of those three dead in their 50s 
So unfortunately, that serves as a reminder of what would happen to you, which is why I say that anyone who did come forward with a message such as that would unfortunately almost inevitably pay for it with their life. But what a service they would be doing to humanity and imagine how liberating that would be for their soul. I mean, forget your back catalogue of music. You've just sacrificed yourself for the humanity, the better good of humanity. I mean, that would be a, a Christ-like gesture. Yes, you know that 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 would put you up there with Buddha or Christ or any of these religious figures. You would be a savior of humanity if you did that. Yeah, and I think in a lot of ways, although Kanye's said some absolutely insane stuff recently, and people just focusing obviously on the anti-Semitic comments that he's made, but there's a load of truth that he's been saying. Like there's a lot of disclosure from Kanye and he's saying MK Ultra is real. I have a handler who's supposed to be my personal trainer. They sacrificed my mother. I mean, so much is coming out here and now Kanye is apparently missing. Well, has he been taken to a facility? You know, when these celebrities go to rehab, are they really going for reprogramming? Yeah, going into rehab is a euphemism for going back into the lab to have your mind control topped up. And I think with Amy Winehouse, when we had the song, they're trying to make me go to rehab, and I say, no, 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 she's actually singing about the fact that they want to reprogram her and she's not having it. And uh, I think it's no coincidence that she then turned up dead in suspicious circumstances at the age of 27 once again a member of the 27 club so with kanye he's been in and out of rehab as has britney spears and mariah carey and so many of them and with kanye it's happened a few times and he does seem to go on a rant every now and again and say seemingly outrageous comments but as you say if you actually examine a lot of what he's saying and you strip away all the layers there's a lot of truth there He's revealing stuff. And very soon after he's had one of these rants, he seems to go into rehab. And uh, then he comes out again a few months later and he's presented back to the public. And I can only speculate as to what's happening with Kanye now, because this whole uh, situation involving him is a massive psyop. Uh, You know, he supposedly appeared on Alex Jones the other week, but he's wearing a ski mask and he's completely covered So we've only got their word for it, that that's Kanye. That could have been anyone under that mask. Then you got the fake Kanye, and that's the one saying, they sacrificed my mother. So yeah, I think that message is correct, but it doesn't seem to be coming actually from Kanye, which would mean that the controllers themselves have put some stooge out there to relate that message. And why would they want to do that? Uh, So the whole thing is a complete head fuck Mm. when it comes to uh, Kanye, but definitely something is afoot. And it's interesting you mentioned that he's missing in the same way that Madonna's missing, I guess. So we'll see what happens on that one. But I think there's only so many times that the controllers would put up with somebody like Kanye going off script and going on a rant Mm. on their own terms. They're only going to put up with that a limited number of times before they become too much of a liability. And then it's Michael Jackson Prince time. Well, just, just to wrap things up then, Mark, like to, to leave things on a bit of a positive note, do you see there being like a mass awakening, a mass disclosure where all the stuff that we're talking about here is actually becomes common knowledge. Like what, what keeps you going in this line of work and where 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 do you think this will end up? 
Well, what keeps me going is the observation that this appears to be my role. This appears to be one way or another, something that I've just just stumbled into. I'm that guy who exposes what the music industry is really all about. And uh, I'm very gratified to have received some very positive feedback to my work, to my talks and to my books and my shows. And it's clear that I just have to keep going down that route. And I leave other aspects of disclosure to other experts. So there are some great doctors and medical professionals out there that are blowing the whistle on uh, all this biological genocide that's going on and uh, they're doing a great job and i leave them to it because that's their uh, field of expertise and there are guys who break down the financial system and the political system and i leave that to them and i just stay focused on the music industry uh, so that's what keeps me going this is my full-time job now i've evidently made a lot of great strides with what i've done i'll get emails almost every day from people telling me that my work has woken them up and got them on the path to truth and that's hugely hugely um gratifying and fulfilling for me in terms of where things are headed i have to maintain an optimistic outlook otherwise i just wouldn't be able to continue and i just think that the more and more of us that there are on this side of things you doing your show, the many other podcast hosts that there are, many other authors and researchers and uh, you know filmmakers putting out great information. We've got to reach a tipping point where yeah. our information outweighs and overwrites the propaganda. There's got to come a point where the tidal wave of knowledge that we're putting forward eclipses all the lies and all the mind control. And I just stay focused on achieving that tipping point i've no idea where that lies whether it's this year whether it's even in my lifetime whether it's 100 years from now all i know is that we have to keep going and that eventually truth overwrites and eclipses all lies so that's what keeps me going hope you enjoyed that episode of the schism we've got plenty more episodes on the way in the meantime follow us on our instagram at schism.tv and keep watching the skies